Juhei Kim, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Your debut is epic. It's ambitious. It is the history of Korea starting in 1917. And I'm going to let you fill in the gaps for everyone else, but it brings us up to the 1960s and it is incredible. Would you tell listeners what your first book is about? Sure. And thank you, Mila, for having me on here. My book, Beasts of a Little Land, is an epic story of love, war, and redemption set against the backdrop of the Korean independence movement. And to me, it's so many things. It is at the core of it, a love story and a story of what people are willing to give up for the things that they believe in and what we're willing to live and die for. And I hope readers find a lot that resonates with them. I love the opening of this book. It's 1917. We're in the Korean mountains. A local hunter is stealing himself essentially to maybe shoot a tiger, which he's actually hoping not to do. But what ends up happening is he encounters a Japanese hunting party. And this takes us into the book setup. How did this book start for you? So (laughs) this takes me back to almost exactly six years ago in November 2015. That's when my fearless agent, Jody Kahn of Branton Hoffman, agreed to represent me. At the time, I hadn't been published anywhere. And I kept pestering Jody and sending sending her more and more short stories until she was like, you know, your stories are beautiful, but they're all kind of sad and dreamy. And I don't know that they have what it takes to go out on the market. And I emailed her back, thanking her for her attention and politely disagreeing with her. And she said, let's get on the phone. And so it was Friday night. And I remember like being on the phone for an hour, like really politely arguing my case. And at the end of the phone call, she was like, okay, you know what? You convinced me. I will represent you. And that was the second happiest moment of my life. The first happiest being when I got into college. I asked her next, Jody. I really would like to sell this book because at the time I was really penniless and struggling in New York <laughs> in this one room that I subletted in, in an apartment in Washington Heights. And she said, Juhei, I'm going to be real with you. You're not there yet. And honestly, short stories don't sell that well. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to sell some of these short stories to lit journals to kind of build up your profile. But in the meantime, I really need you to start writing a novel. So I was really upset. Like, I can't believe it. (laughs) I I still can't write a book. I went running in Fort Tryon Park in the northern reaches of Manhattan, and it was snowing. And during that run, I had this vision of a hunter lost in the snow. And actually, a lot of things came to me, like the very last scenes. Towards the end, there is a meeting between two lovers who have been separated for decades. And that scene came to me and what what they say to each other came to me during that run. So I came back and I just started writing. And I have to say, the things that came to me um, during that run have not changed during years of writing and revising because so much in the middle got changed, but the beginning and the end, like very few words even were changed. So it was kind of magical. Which brings me to something I've been dying to ask you about because the language in the book is amazing. And you sort of hinted at it when you said lots changed in the middle, but not a lot changed in the beginning and not a lot changed in the end. What is your editing and rewriting process like? There are two types of writers, writers who prefer writing and writers who prefer editing. And I am definitely a writer who prefers writing the first time and being done with it. 
And I'm not saying that that's good. I think there are pros and cons to both. I'm somebody who relies a lot on inspiration, as you can probably imagine from this first story that I told you. But to actually write a publishable book, you need more than that flash of inspiration, and you really need to be willing to do the work. And I will say, it took me two years to write and two years to edit. And I think I wrote way too fast in the first two years. And I would have known that if I had my experience that I do now, but um, I was quite inexperienced as a writer. And um, I think I learned that writing slowly will sometimes save you the effort of going back and revising. But that kind of like, I must write fast and get it all out there happened because also I was working a full-time job in New York and I was writing between 10 p.m. and 2 and 5 a.m. and 7. And sometimes I'd be on the subway writing on my iPhone. I'm working on something else right now. And with that, it feels completely different because now I'm giving myself a lot more time to write it well the first time. So if you're the kind of writer who enjoys editing, I envy that and (laughs) I wish I could be like that. The women in Beasts of a Little Land have a really rough go of it. They're all from a very poor community. The Really the only career that's open to them is to become courtesans. And that feels very sort of old fashioned, but we are talking about the turn of the 20th century. In Korea, the Japanese have occupied Korea. It is a very difficult go. They're taking all of the resources out of Korea and sending them back to Japan. So that's food, that's oil, that's everything. The men, though, have kind of interesting trajectories in this book. You've got a guy who we meet him first as a homeless kid, and he becomes very active in the independence movement. We have the guy I think of as the wealthy dilettante. He's got a publishing house. He's got a bicycle shop. He has no real direction. He's just, you know, very happy to spend his family's money, but he really doesn't want to get into trouble. He just sort of wants to be left alone. And then there's the up-and-coming capitalist who starts out as a rickshaw driver for the women and ends up being the guy with everything in the end. And the way their stories overlap with the women, uh, Dina and Jade uh, specifically, but also a little bit with um, Jade's sort of foster sisters, Luna and Lotus, is really interesting. So how did you sort out those relationships as you were working? Like who, I'm guessing Jade is probably one of the first characters to appear, if not the first. You know, they all kind of came at the same time. I have mm-hmm. to say they, they all came almost fully formed. And I knew right away that this was going to be a love story between three people. I forget who said this, but one famous author said there are four types of stories. There's a love story between two people, a love story between three people, a story of a journey and the building of an empire. And of course, there can be a mixture of all of those things. But um, for me, right away, I was like, I want to write a love story about three people. And Jade is you know, the main person in that love triangle. And um, her two lovers came to me very quickly. And um, a lot of these characters felt so natural to me because um, they are based in some very distant way um, to uh, based on people that I know in real life or um, my ancestors, to be honest, on both sides of the family. So, um, you know, Zhang Ho, who is that independence fighter, uh, he's just incredibly, incredibly loosely based on my maternal grandfather, 
because, uh, you know, my good maternal grandfather was not homeless per se, but he, you know, was from a humble background. Whereas my paternal grandfather, again, like his uh, Song Su, the bourgeois publisher, his personality is just based on some other things that I've observed, but I would say his social standing and his education and maybe his thought process are based on my paternal grandfather, who completely in an opposite way had a well-to-do background. And how I know this is I talked to my dad and my dad was born in 1953, the year the Korean War ended. He's never been hungry in his life. And I know this. And for him to have four sisters, so they're raising five children, and he's the eldest son, and to have never gone hungry during that immediate post-war period, I know that, you know, that meant something a lot. And my mother's family would have been completely the opposite, as was normal for most of the country. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was very easy to pull from these background characters in my life, and they just came at me. <laughs> okay, was the fact that they all came at you, is that the biggest surprise you had while you were writing this book, or is there something else that caught you off guard? Actually, the biggest surprise is how naturally and organically I could see this book. But in terms of craft level, I had to do a lot of convincing. I wrote a lot of drafts and sent it to my agent, and my agent kept saying, I get it. I get what vision you have, but still it needs more. It needs more work. And I was just so shocked by it because I'm like, but you don't understand. A lot of these things came to me while I was dreaming. Even I would figure out plot points overnight and I'd wake up in the morning and figure out how they would meet each other, etc. So it was weird to me that something that felt so like Yes, this has to be right, because instinctively, I know that this is, this exists, but it still needed a lot of different sets of eyes to tell me it's alive in your head, Juhei, but in book form, it needs more work to work. <laughs> Do you have a favorite moment from the story? I mean, we hit the teens, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, and then the 60s, really. You know, the 50s, you know, the 50s are really the war. Yeah. And, and the division of North and South Korea, which the characters go through it during then. But that's also a very sort of specific experience outside of these other decades. Do you have a favorite moment? So I have lots. I love the ending for me personally. It's one of my f- favorites. Um, that scene where Jade and Jung Ho meet very late in life, one of my favorites. So one of the ways in which I know that I'm a Korean writer, even though I'm a Korean American writer, and I feel very proud that I produce something that is within the spirit of Korean literature, is that Korean literature places a lot of emphasis on poignancy. And in fact, they might even say that that's the most valuable thing about literature. And so I always knew that there was a moment of catharsis that I was writing toward. And, you know, writing the ending really did make me cry. And I knew that if it's making me cry, like it has a chance of really moving the readers. So those are some of the favorite moments. But I do also have to say it's not enough if you have just one or two favorite moments in a book. And as a debut novelist, I really learned this for the next time. You have to have Favorite moments, like at least once every two pages, if not more, like in order for you to pass muster and publish a book that gets well-read, well-received, you have to like show off everywhere, make everything count because readers lose interest. So (laughs) you have to pile it all on. The stakes are pretty high for your characters. Everyone is constantly trying to save themselves, to be honest. I mean, everyone as the title is, everyone shows a bit of a beast Mm -hmm. 
in them. Do you have a favorite character? I say this a lot, but my favorite characters are actually the antagonists. So I loved writing Ito, which mm-hmm. every time I say this, my agent's like, Juhei Yu. <laughs> He's, I he's, loved writing Tongsu, who's also another kind of you character. I don't think that I am most like those characters. I think my own personality is most closely resembles maybe Myungbo because I'm a huge idealist. I think anybody who knows me would say that. But I give these nasty people pieces of my own soul because when I do that, then I care about them and they're not these cartoon villains. Ito, for example, one of the things that he loves is art. And he really prides himself on his ability to appreciate art. And in fact, like he loves ideas and he loves beautiful objects. That to him represents a kind of pure plane, which is not sullied by these imperfect humans. And I'm not saying that I fully agree with it because like, I, of course, I love humanity, but that's understandable to me why he's the way he is. So those are the characters that I really actually care about. How much research did you have to do? I mean, 50 years of Korean history, that's not nothing. (laughs) A lot of research. And I actually don't say in my author's notes or like, this is the research that I did just because I really do want to place more on the fiction part of the historical fiction. And it's a conversation that I think maybe it doesn't belong here. I I need another platform to uh, speak up on, but there is a lot of onus placed on writers of color, especially Asian writers, to present historical fiction as opposed to literary fiction. And with that comes all the other consequences critically and commercially. So especially because I uh, wrote something that features a colorful occupation such as courtesan, even though I don't think that means that these women are more sensuous or sensational than any other women in history. It was important to me for people to know this isn't history, it's historical fiction, but it's really a work of literature. So I did a lot of research. And one thing that was very helpful is that I'm fluent in Korean, I have a lot of firsthand sources. And I even read not in firsthand Japanese, but I read some Japanese literature from that time and also post-war period. And obviously, a lot of Korean literature from that time, that was also very helpful because the art they were producing at the time was very interesting. So it was helpful for me to understand and not only see what kind of background they were living in the city, the kind of products they use, but to really understand that even at the time, people thought about basically the the same things. They thought about cheating on their wives and like going to meet call girls or courtesans, or they thought about the fact that they really wanted to be smart and their parental expectations were high, but they really didn't have that in, in them. These are all very relatable motives and desires and fears. So that really helped me relax. Let's talk about some of your literary influences as well. I mean, you studied art at Princeton, so writing came later, right? Absolutely. I studied art history. The degree is called Art and Archaeology Department, but um, essentially I was on art history track and it's the number one writing influence that I have to this day. And I'm actually rather glad that I didn't take creative writing, although that school has such a strong creative writing program, the late Toni Morrison taught there. And With, I think, creative writing courses or MFAs comes a certain type of writing that's craft-driven. And also, it asks writers often to think about different ways of describing something that no one else has done before. 
And with my art history discipline, it was about just describe it as precisely as possible. So you can lead the reader very easily through what you see in your mind. And I'm a visual thinker. When I write anything, I see it happen. And so from that education, I I just learned how to describe everything very precisely as opposed to trying to come up with a thousand different new ways to describe snow, for example. And writing came to me late, pretty much because I didn't think that I could make writing a profession. I come from a very modest background, and as do many immigrant children, I didn't think of a life of an artist as an actual option. And it was actually very surprising to me when I became an editorial assistant in New York Publishing and saw all these people who actually thought that that was a career route that was open to them. And then from there, I started slowly moving in that direction of creating my own work. And you've been published since then in, I'm just looking at this list, Granta, Slice, Zizia, Catapult, The Times Literary Supplement, Joyland, Shenandoah, Guernica, Sierra Magazine, The Massachusetts Review, The Independent Portland, oh, excuse me, The Independent, Portland Monthly, and Dispatches from Anares, which is an anthology. This is great. You're also working as a translator. That was a one-off project. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's a really interesting story. <laughs> we can talk about it. And then if it runs too long, we can go and like trim down. But I did a three months self-funded sabbatical in France in 2019, because I got so burned out of New York. And I said, I quit everything. And I just want to go to France and learn French. And before I went there, I had this idea again, like a lightning bolt. I'm like, wait a minute, what if I passed through London and said hello to my granta editor, Luke? And I hadn't talked to him in the past couple of years. But I was like, you know, I feel like there might be something there. And I even had the idea that (laughs) I would be pitching him if I can can I translate this for you because I really like this short story. And I even thought about bringing that book with me, a book of short stories by this late, great Che In-ho, who's one of 20th century's greatest Korean authors, but he hadn't been translated into English before. But I didn't bring the book. I didn't want to jinx it. And then so I meet Luke at the Granta office and he and I were talking about Korean authors and he was like, so who do you think I should be reading? And I was like, well, there's this great guy named Che In-ho, but he's never been translated. And he goes, so do you want to translate something and send it over? And so I get out at that meeting and I'm like texting my mom. I'm like, mom, you must scan those pages for me and send it immediately. And so I landed in France like a couple of days later. And like I took off my coat in my Airbnb after many days of going from Portland, Oregon to Grenoble, France, and took off my coat. And for 24 hours, I'm like manically translating. Didn't come out, like not even to get food. And I'm in France and sent it over to Luke. And that became my first translation project. And the reward for that, I mean, again, I didn't write this, but the reason I identify as an author, artist, and advocate, artist part is really, I am here in service of all art, not just my own art. And I thought that this story was just so valuable and it had been buried. It had never been translated. So I was very proud to get it published. You and I share a love of Charles Yu's Interior Chinatown. Who are some of the other writers you look to and recommend and read again? So I'm going to just say like freestyle and think um, some of the recent like really nice ones. I was really late in reading The Master and Margarita and that was a relatively recent read and I loved it. And before then I 
I loved Anna Karenina. And to me, Anna Karenina, not only being like kind of a prototype model for my Beast of a Little Land, I always thought of that as the perfect novel. But I realized The Master and Margarita might not be a better novel, but it might be a better work of art. <laughs> I would love to discuss this with some like other Russian literature uh, lovers and see if I have any handle on that. But just uh, really uh, stupefied. Um, another book that I recently read, and I'm like looking at my coffee table, mm-hmm. is Caroline Kim's The Prince of Mournful Thoughts. It's a short story collection. Have you heard of it? Mm -mm. So it was a Drew Hines winner and a Drew Hines prize is given by the University of Pittsburgh and then they publish it and it came out in um, 2020 uh, long listed for the story prize I think and for a small press book it got a lot of acclaim and attention rightfully so because I found it really really beautiful and very moving. Also so some of the recent highlights that other people might not know, and, and it's it's within the past year or so. Have you heard of Narayama Bushko? Mm-mm. Narayama Bushko is by uh, Fukasawa Shichiro, or I'm probably butchering his name. But this is also a, a novella from a while back, and it's a very Japanese story. It's steeped in Japanese culture and sensibility. And I found it really kind of mind-blowing you know some books just blow your mind away and I I just thought that that was amazing you know I say this in my acknowledgments there were two concerns about writing this book one is that I didn't want it to seem like a pro-communist book because every Korean person knows and and the world knows that North Korea is an authoritarian regime that's committing human rights crimes left and right. And I'm not condoning that whatsoever. It was a real concern to me that this is not a statement about modern state North and South. Um, However, the reason why some of the good guys are blatantly communists and some of the bad guys are pro-American capitalists is because a lot of independence activists were communists because, you know, this was an era before Stalin and they were really idealists. And at that time, you're really thinking in the early days of communism, you're really thinking you want to create a better world where poor people are fed. And so idealists were apt to be communists and also work for independence movement. And a lot of those people's histories were suppressed by the Southern government and they weren't acknowledged in the same way that others were. And, you know, a lot of them were persecuted or they fled to the North where the North didn't treat them well either. I mean, like, you know, it was just a bad time for everybody. And two, I, I was concerned that this would be seen anti-Japanese because that's also not what I'm trying to do either. I would hope that all, all authors are um, humanitarians first and believe in common human values. Obviously, this side of history where Japan colonized Korea doesn't make me look like I'm a, I'm a Japan fan. But at the same time, like I'm able to tell this is the past, this is what happened. And also, they also create great culture. They also create great works of literature that speaks to me on a human level. And that has nothing to do with colonialism or uh, our past tragedy. So I love reading works that cross boundaries like that, because that is really a function of art. Like one of the functions of art is to remind us that we're really one. We're not supposed to be divided. I said something a little bit to that extent in the acknowledgments, and I hope that people after reading 400 pages have enough energy to see that. (laughs) But I think, too, we have to acknowledge what people have done and how they've behaved towards one another. I, I think it's important that you handle the material in front of you 
the way you did. I don't, I don't think you come off as anti-Japanese. I think that's it's just, good. I mean, a lot of people lack nuance, right? So yeah. some, some people might take it that way, but I'm glad that you don't think that it seems that way because I certainly don't. I, Again, I said that Ito is my favorite character. That should tell you something. It's also true that there are a lot of these histories that are just simply less well-known. And for example, America had a very active role in colonizing Asia. And this reverberates even today. I mean, that's why the North and the South are divided. Uh, It's one of the contributing factors. There are a lot of things about American colonialism of South Pacific that I don't know much about, that I would love to know more about, and I think should be addressed more. And that has consequences now. I mean, think about the nuclear tests that are going on in these islands and contaminating their environments. These these are happening right now. So that certainly played into my mind that this not only stops at this time, but look, you know, we're worried about North Korea now. And frankly, this is where it all began. We know who you are as a writer, but who are you as a reader? Are you looking for language first? Are you looking for story? Are you looking for character? I love questions like this. I am a writer who looks for poignancy and a reader who looks for poignancy. Even if it has the most beautiful language or the most clever story structure, like the plot can be, you know, spot on or characters that are really well developed and you can hear them breathe. There has to be something that moves you at the end and catharsis. For me, that's what matters. And not everybody reads for that. I think a lot of people read for different reasons. There's not one way to read correctly. Even if you have all those elements, I think if you don't have a certain kind of soul, then that poignancy can be missing. Like It's like you're you're being very performative. You're throwing a lot of poetic phrases. But at the end, if you come out feeling like, well, was that it? And you know, I feel kind of empty. I mean, it's, it was very good. It was very beautiful, but like, what am I left with? If it doesn't hit you, then for me, it's not that worthwhile. I love that um, Kafka quote about a book should be an ax for the frozen lake inside our souls. And really what I mean by poignancy, it is a kind of sadness and it is kind of a break. It, It is a kind of a heartbreak. I don't think poignancy happens by just simply making us happy because That doesn't lead to empathy, really. I think empathy really happens from a bit of a heartbreak. And when empathy happens, that's very life-affirming. That's what I am looking for as a reader and a writer. But is that a combination of all three? Is that a combination of language, character, and story? I think it's a fourth thing. It's a different thing. Because you can have language, story, and characters Mm -hmm. that are like all like really, really fantastic. But you can also come out of it kind of like, I'm not super feeling like the life-affirming essence. (laughs) And, you know, I I can think of some books that are like stupendous, but I wouldn't consider them like my epitome just because they're so technically masterful. But in terms of poignance level, I'm, I'm not moved as a human soul. And so it probably, it's not my favorite favorite. So are you talking about literally heart and soul? A book's heart and soul. I mean, is that the thing that you ultimately want more than anything? Because I yeah. think you, I think you get that from language. I mean, that's that's where I'm going with this. Is I, I think language is the thing that creates the character, that creates the story, that creates the atmosphere, that creates the heart of a book. You know, sometimes prose can be so powerful, and I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't even know how you can write so well. I'm also not like 
on a soul to soul level connected to the book. And I think that that's what I mean. And there are a lot of people that have this, but you know, some people are just so good. But at the end, I'm not like crying or, you know, you don't have to cry. I'm not saying that that's a requirement, but you're not devastated by a book. You might be awed by it. Given what you just said, I want to go back to Anna Karenina for a second. I want to go back to Tolstoy because talk about all of the feels in one book. All of the feels are there. And I have to say, like, I would get very frustrated with Anna at points and her dudes and all of this. But let's talk about why you love that book and why you think it's a perfect novel. (laughs) That is definitely the book that has language, story, and characters. And I am mesmerized by how closely he gets inside the characters' minds. And he's able to just go very narrow, zoom in to the human psyche, and also like zoom out in this panoramic view of Russian society, but he does it in such a seamless way. I mean, he makes you see what what you need to see. And the characters are so human. I love that opening scene with Steva when he's taking a leisurely bath and like getting ready with his ballet. He's really also struggling with his marriage and, you know, he's been cheating on his wife. She found out and it's what anybody could be dealing with right now. So you're immediately hooked into it. Tolstoy really understands how desire works. And you immediately take to these characters, even slime balls, because they have desires that you can immediately see and understand. Like Steva really wants to send the wife and the kids to the country house because he's really running out of money and he thinks of it as a way of saving face and saving money. From then, we go into the mind of Dolly, where she thinks, well, the country is going to be good for the kids. All she cares about is the kids. Her love of her kids is the redeeming thing that saves everything for this neglected wife. And so you really feel for her. And Tolstoy understands women as well as men. Like, I get no sense that he doesn't understand the mind of a woman because I can see this dolly person so clearly more than 100 years later. So you're relating to all of these characters. And the language, of course, is phenomenal. When I feel like my language is just really languishing, I can just open any page in Anna Karenina and start just transcribing. And just from following how he structures his sentences, I'm like, okay, that shook something loose in my brain and I can go back and write better sentences. So he's phenomenal that way. What he has to say about human nature and the human experience really makes sense to me. I think it is a story about not just a family, but about a woman. I, I know that, you know, it starts out with that statement about families and maybe it is about family life, but I think it is about a woman's thwarted desires. There was no other way she could have lived this. I think that this was destiny for her. So you really feel moved by her plight. You are frustrated with her perhaps, but she almost didn't have a choice. So that's very tragic. Does destiny control what happens to your characters in Beasts of the Little Land? Totally. <laughs> and I don't think that's very subtle. I think it's um it's written in the back flap. <laughs> so it's not it's not like we're hiding it, beating around the bushes. But you know what they say about magical realism? There's been a real discussion over how magical realism in its truest origins is it's Latin American literature. And it's not this something very fey that we created to enchant people. It's actually how Latin Americans view life. 
it's their reality. If they see a table kind of moving and we think it's their dead uncle and they're like sipping tea, that's because they're not trying to be magical about it. That's how they think of their life. And for me, it's the same way. I'm not just trying to throw cute coincidences out there to do plot twist. It's actually how Koreans kind of largely view life. It's how I view life. It's, It's in my culture. So yeah, destiny plays a great deal of roles. Let me give you an example. Koreans really believe in dreams. They believe that there are premonitions like of deaths or births. There's a, something called birth dream where if you're pregnant before anybody knows you're pregnant, you might have birth dreams. Mine, my mom tells me was a fruit and I love fruit. <laughs> she had dreamed of these beautiful ripe roots and then she realized she was pregnant. So you can see how we have a different way of thinking about life and destiny plays a great deal of importance. Okay, so what's in your destiny? What's next for you? (laughs) Well, um, the thing about destiny is that humans don't always get dreams or premonitions (laughs) that let us know, hey, it's coming, preview. So I am working on other books right now that I'm really excited about. I'm working on another novel that's not going to be historical. It's going to be about ballet. And how I choose my subjects is really like, what am I really interested in? And what do I want to say about life? I don't think it's really wise to start writing before you have a formed idea of what you want to say. And I know that there are different schools of thought, the Joan Didion school of thought, where I don't know what I'm thinking until I start writing. And I respect that. For me, I'm the kind of writer where I need to have some kind of wisdom before I just start typing, typing. So um, this ballet novel is going to be about art, about dance. And because it's me, it's going to have love and all of that stuff. And I'm also working on an ecological short story collection. I'm working on a lot of books, but I also, it is a big part of me. The advocacy part is very big for me. Part of the author proceeds of this piece of a little land, 5% is going to this tiger conservation group in Russia called the Phoenix Fund. So my hope is that I will get a lot of other chances, interviews like this one or articles where I can speak up about them. They are doing such interesting work and I wish I can help more with different related projects as my writing career blossoms. Writing novels isn't the only thing you do. You're the co-founder and the co-editor of a magazine called Peaceful Dumpling. It's an online magazine and I really like the title. What's the ethos behind Peaceful Dumpling? I really like the name of your magazine. It's very groovy. (laughs) Peaceful Dumpling in a nutshell is an online magazine at the intersection of sustainable lifestyle and ecological literature and reportage. I've been a vegan for the past 15 years, and I actually started Peaceful Dumpling while I was working in publishing because I needed an outlet to be more creative. And this is something that I feel very passionate about. And perception has changed even since since 2013 when I started it. It's become a lot more mainstream, but I think still people often think that it's something difficult or maybe requires sacrifice. And I think that it's just joyful and really helpful. I know that it makes me feel so much happier on a day-to-day basis. And so we just want to stress the positive aspects and talk about all the benefits, all the wellness benefits of living a happier and more compassionate life. Is there anything that we might have missed that you want listeners to know about Beasts of a Little Land? I'm not going to be too cool for school about it. I'm a debut novelist. I've worked really hard over the years to get this book out there. And Please let me know if you read it and it moves you in any way or, you know, you like it in any way. I 
read every comment and I often, like I respond to every thoughtful comment. Juhei Kim, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. Beasts of a Little Land is out now. Thank you. Port Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. 